This evening, our study is in Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. Before we read the, the chapter and actually talk about what's in the chapter, I'd like for us to be reminded of a few truths whenever we read and whenever we understand these events of the Bible and anything the Bible explains related to God and the people of God. The first point I'd like to stress and emphasize is that God is over the nations. God rules over the nations. When we read a book like Esther, we have to keep that in mind. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, the, the prophet Daniel had to tell Nebuchadnezzar this truth. In 4.17, he says, this sentence, the sentence or in response to this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, an explanation is given, and a part of this is in verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar was to learn that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he gives this realm, this power and dominion over mankind to whomever he wishes. And he sets over this realm the lowliest of men, the, the feeblest and meager men that exist, and even as kings and powerful kings, they are considered lowly men. Even Nebuchadnezzar is. He says in verse 25, a part of the punishment that Nebuchadnezzar will receive for not understanding this in verse 25 that you may be driven from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Nebuchadnezzar's pride is going to well up, and then he's going to be struck with this madness for seven years. And after the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to recognize that heaven rules. In verse 32, he repeats these words. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. This happened at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment. This oracle was revealed to him. Then verse 34. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? This pagan king who is known as the lowliest of men. This pagan king, although he's a mighty king, God considers him lowly. Verse 34, after his seven-year period of insanity, it says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor was restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. In those examples, we, we learn that God is the ruler over the realm of mankind. He puts up a mighty king like Nebuchadnezzar, but still, in relation to God, considers him the lowliest of men. And then when Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the purpose for which he exists, he praises and honors God. And he humbles himself and realizes he needed to be humbled in order that God be exalted. God rules over the nations. We have that specific example with Nebuchadnezzar, but generally speaking, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, that's God, God turns it wherever he wishes. All kings throughout all history, their hearts are in the hand of the Lord, and God turns it just like a river or a channel is turned or, and is, it moves in this and that direction. God turns it however he wants the heart of the king to turn. Not just in Nebuchadnezzar's case, but in all cases, God rules over the nations. Now I'd like to show you an example, two kinds of examples. One example of pagan kings who do God's will and it turns out to be good. God makes them do something good. And then I'll show you how God uses pagan kings to do evil. God inclines them or makes them to do evil. Firstly, is doing good. 2 Chronicles 36, 22. 2 Chronicles 36, 22. This is Cyrus, king of Persia. The same kingdom that we study here in the book of Esther. Earlier in their kingdom... Cyrus was king. Second Chronicles 36:22. This is a pagan, unbelieving king who is moved by God to do good to benefit the people of God. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. In 22, it says that in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied that this would happen, and now God is making it happen. It says in 22, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation. God stirred up his spirit, the pagan king's spirit, the king of a foreign people who have the people of Judah as one of their subjugated peoples. And here, this king is made by God to issue a proclamation that benefits the people of God so that they can return to their homeland, build their cities, build their temple to worship God. 
And from Ezra chapter 1 and other places, such as Ezra chapter 7, we see that even the king's treasury was to be used to build the temple of God. The king's own treasury to build the temple of God. Another example is Ezra 7. Ezra 7. Later, after Cyrus, in the time of Ezra the scribe and priest, the king in Ezra's time, the king of Persia, his name is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes also issues a decree that benefits Ezra, the man of God, and the people of God, the people of Judah. Ezra 7, verse 14. We read excerpts of the, the decree of Artaxerxes. 7.14 For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. Notice there, it's the king and his counselors who are sending out Ezra who has the law of his God in his hand. He knows that Ezra holds the law of God, the word of God in his hand. Verse 21, 21. And I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. Then some of the items that they are to use for the building of the temple, they are mentioned there. All of the provinces beyond the river, that is on the western side of the Euphrates River, where the region of Judah or Judea is, Ezra's to go there and to benefit from the king's treasury there to do whatever is in the law of the God of heaven. Verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, making reference to the law, which he calls wisdom, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. The king gives Ezra permission to do all these things. And Ezra acknowledges how all of this came about. Verse 27. Ezra's prayer. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Who has put, put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Here a second example, Artaxerxes, a pagan king of Persia, gives permission to Ezra and the people to return to Judah and to have whatever resources they need to be a success in Judah. These are two pagan kings moved by God to do good things in order that it might benefit the people of God. Now a couple of examples of evil kings, pagan kings, doing evil. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. 
Deuteronomy 2.30. They do evil, which will also benefit the people of God. Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. Moses recounts what happened on the eastern side of the Jordan River while Moses was alive and while their enemies attacked them and what they did in response to that attack. Deuteronomy 2, verse 30. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. He was not willing. For the Lord your God hardened his heart and made his spirit or made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. It says in verse 30, Sihon, the enemy king, was not willing for the people of Israel to pass through his territory, his country. Why was he unwilling? Why was his own will unwilling? 30 says, For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. God made his spirit and his heart unwilling to help Israel. What was the result? There was warfare. And to whom did God give victory? It says, In order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. God made Sihon attack Israel and God gave Israel the victory over him so that they might possess the land. The land that he possessed, that Sihon possessed, now belongs to Israel. That was a benefit to the people of God. A wicked, evil, pagan king did wrong. God moved him to do that in order that God might destroy him by means of the army of Israel. And then Israel benefits by possessing that territory on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We have a further example in Joshua chapter 11. Joshua 11. Here, there is an alliance of kings that fights against Joshua and the people of Israel. Joshua and Israel. Jo- Joshua 11, verse 18. 11, 18. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon, they took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that, they might, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There we read of the many kings who are enemies. Only one city made peace with Israel. And only one did so because God hardened the hearts of all the rest of them. He hardened their hearts and made them meet Israel in battle in order that Joshua might destroy them all so that they might not receive any mercy, purposely not receive any mercy. He destroyed them just as the Lord commanded Moses. Pagan evil kings are doing what God moves them to do, though their own hearts also move them to do it, and they lose in battle 
and Israel takes their territory, possesses their territory according to the commandment of Moses. As God commanded Moses, Moses taught them to do and Joshua did. All right. We see that God's at work over the nations and even over pagan evil kings to do those things which are good or to do those things which are evil, but in both cases to benefit the people of God. And when we speak of the benefit of the people of God, this should remind us of Romans 8.28, which says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for our benefit to the ones who love God. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes. All things are for your sakes. They work out for our benefit, all things that happen in the world. 2 Corinthians 4.15 That the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Whatever happens for our benefit causes grace to spread to more and more people that God will save, and in the end it causes the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. For our benefit and God's glory. Our benefit and the glory of God. This is why these things happen. Now, one more thing to note, and that is, not only do we learn about God and God's work on our behalf and His glory, but we also see how we ought to live. When we read Esther and books of the Old Testament like Esther, the Scripture tells us what we're supposed to learn from them. Even though you might not see a verse or an explicit statement in every chapter or verse as to how we're supposed to benefit, we're supposed to study and seek for ways in which we're supposed to learn from these passages. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, 4. 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times, in the Old Testament times, whatever was written, was written for our instruction, in order to teach us, to teach the later generation, that, here's the purpose, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, they are teaching us perseverance and encouragement that we might have hope. Through perseverance and encouragement, we have hope. That's why they're written. When we read about the trials that Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews faced, we read about what they needed to do, how they needed to, to fast, how they needed to plead and do what was right. And then God delivered them. In the same way, when we experience trials, we go to God, and God helps us, and He delivers us from our afflictions. Another example is 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. You also know that in the book of Esther, we have evil men plotting evil against the people of God. 
What should we think about those evil men and how can we learn from them? How can we learn from an evil man? 1 Corinthians 10.6 explains. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. The examples that are recorded in the Old Testament of evil people committing evil are written there, are preserved there, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. They're written there to warn us not to crave the same kinds of things they craved. Then he, he lists some examples of idolatry and immorality. And then in verse 11 he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They happened to them as an example. They didn't happen haphazardly. They didn't happen by chaos and, and any kind of disorder that was unintended. God intended all of those human events to occur. He says so right there. They happened, these things happened to them as an example. They happened purposely as an example for, for us, for the later generation. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're written for us in our instruction. Verse 12, notice. We're not, or they are, are not unique people. They are not unique and we are not unique in the general sense that we all have a human nature with the same kinds of trials and temptations. Verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We might think, oh no, we're better than they are. We might think that. The, the apostle warns us, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can easily fall into the same temptations and do the same evil that they did. Verse 13. However, there's hope. 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. It's common to man, these temptations. They're not only for us and they're not only for them uniquely. And God is faithful. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He puts us in those times of trials, but He does not put us there alone. He's there as our helper. He's, he's there to give us His grace, His gracious spirit to fill us and to provide the way of escape for us, to help us to overcome and endure the temptation. Then, that means when we read about the, the noble, righteous, good examples that we read of in Esther and other parts of the Old Testament, we ought to emulate those people. We ought to ask God that we might be like them. And then when we read about evil people like Haman and others in the Old Testament who do wickedness, that we ought to take warning and never be like them. Never presume to be like them and never say, oh, I would never be like that. I'm better than Haman. Remember, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can easily be like those kinds of people. 
Now let's read Esther chapter 1. Esther 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. When he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Susa the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violent linen, held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, For it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him. Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsana, and Memukan the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? And in the presence of the king and the princes, Memukan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in to his presence, but she did not come. And this day the ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. And this word pleased 
the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master of his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. In verses 1 to 9, we have a report of the domain of King Ahasuerus, where he ruled and how vast his kingdom was, and this banquet that he presents to his officials and to the greatest to the least of the people living and visiting Susa the capital. And then Queen Vashti also has a banquet for the women. In verse 1, in the days of Ahasuerus, in, out, uh, in literature outside the Bible and in certain translations of the Bible, this name Ahasuerus is the same as Xerxes, Xerxes I. Xerxes I, who reigned from 486 to 469 BC. 486 to 469 BC. And it says here in verse 1 he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. These provinces are more ethnic and linguistic provinces throughout the Persian Empire. It says here from India, the India that the Persians ruled over is not technically the current political India of today. It is the India that existed in times past where the Indus River is. The Indus River currently flows through modern Pakistan, political Pakistan. So the Persian Empire reached that far into modern, current Pakistan, that far. Later, of course, Alexander the Great went beyond that and into modern northern India. He went farther east. But this Persian Empire reached into modern Pakistan, which the Bible in the NASB calls India. I think a better one would have been Pakistan. And then it says to Ethiopia. Ethiopia in the Bible is sometimes called Kush. It's called Kush usually in the older literature of ancient times, uh, such as the, the language of the, the Hebrew people and also language of Akkadian and the various Akkadian languages. Kush is the more common name. Later, in the time of the Greeks and the Romans, it was known as Ethiopia. And that's the language, or, or that's the term now, and the region today is that country that's just south of Egypt. So Ethiopia, south of Egypt, from there all the way towards the east into modern Pakistan is how far his dominion was. He has a vast dominion, vast reign. Of course he inherited this because the Persian Empire that assumed vast amounts of territory started about 539 B.C. when they conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. And they continued until 332 B.C. until Alexander the Great, the, the Greek king of the, the Grecian Empire, he conquered the Media uh, and Persian Empire. This is in the middle of that time, in the middle of that dominion, Ahasuerus or Xerxes reigns. It says that he had his royal throne in Susa, the capital. For a part of the Persian kingdom, Susa, a city in the east, that was the capital of the empire. They changed it to another city called Persepolis later. 
But at this point, it was Susa, the capital. This is in accordance with what we know outside the Bible and extra-biblical historical and religious writings. In verse 3, in the third year of his reign, which would be about 482 B.C., he holds this banquet. The contents of this book take about a dozen years, about 12 years, the events of this book. It says there, in the third year of his reign, he holds this banquet for his princes and attendants, army officers, nobles, princes of his provinces. They were all present for these 180 days. It's not clear. It's highly doubtful that all of them, 100% of them, were there for 180 days, leaving the rest of the empire vulnerable. Likely they came in, in shifts or in waves or something of that nature. There would have been some officials still out there and others coming over this period of 180 days. However, at the end of the 180 days, in which he's displaying his majesty and his glory, he holds a feast. Now, one more thing about what he did in that period of time. It was shortly after this, after this banquet, uh, a couple of years later after this banquet, that he waged war against the Greeks. He waged war in order to expand his empire farther north and west of what it already controlled. And he wanted to to conquer the Greek, uh, the Greek areas uh, uh, and Greek territories of the world uh, at the time. So scholars believe that he is doing this to show his own officials that he has plenty of wealth and plenty of resources to carry out this task. For him to be able to do all of this uh, display of his glory and hold this kind of feast for all the people was in order to show you can trust me, I have the resources, I know what I'm doing, I have it all planned, let's work together, let's unite, we have a wonderful empire, and let, now let's expand it and go conquer the Greeks. Let's prepare to conquer them. Though it doesn't tell us that much in the Bible, it perhaps is the reason why he's holding this banquet. Well, seven days after the 180 days, he holds the banquet, a banquet of wine, at least if it did not have also some food associated with it. He holds it, it says in verse 5, For all the people who were present in Susa the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Whoever was present in Susa, whoever was visiting and whoever lived in Susa, the greatest, the highest ranking officials, to the least, to the least of the people, Whoever among the people of the capital city wanted to come, they came to the court of the garden of the king's palace. They came to this place that was a luxuriously decked place. It was well built and there to display the king's glory and for the king to enjoy his own glory and the officials and people who would come seeing his splendor, his wealth, his luxury. It's described in verse 6 white and violet linen, hangings of white and violet, uh, violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings, marble columns, couches of gold and silver of, on a mosaic pavement. And the mosaic pavement had these various stones, uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, which actually comes from, uh, from the sea, from 
sea creatures, and then precious stones. All of these were there in the court of the garden of the king's palace. All of this would have been a wonderful place to sit and to have a banquet, to enjoy the king's luxury and his, his bounty. Well, verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels. Golden vessels, drinking this wine in golden vessels. Wine was plentiful. There was no lack of it. However, in verse 8, they weren't compelled to drink and get drunk. They could if they wanted. Some did and some didn't. So each person could do according to his own desire. Verse 9, the queen gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. It was a custom in Persian times for the men and the women to celebrate differently, to gather for banquets in separate locations, not mingling, but doing it separately. As is known in extra-biblical literature from history, so they do here also. This is exactly according to the custom of the Persians. Verse 10. From verse 10, 10 to 12, we have the, re- the request of the king, the summons of the king to bring the queen to display her beauty and then her rejection of that summons. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and then he names his seven eunuchs, or the names of the seven eunuchs are mentioned there. These seven eunuchs are those who serve in the presence of the king. And these eunuchs are the ones who have access to the queen and all of her helpers and all of her maidens and all of her servants and slaves. These seven eunuchs have access to the queen. The term eunuch, it's not a word that we use very much these days. A eunuch is someone who has a male who has been castrated, who has his organ cut off so that he cannot use his sexual organ. And the purpose is in order for him to serve as an official who will not cause problem among the women of the court. That they can be used as officials to do the duties and commands of the king without causing problems to the women in the court. This is this is uh, the use of the seven eunuchs. They're used this way by the king. And this is why it says in verse 11, he, they were sent to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. It certainly says in verse 11 that she came with her royal crown and he wanted her to display her beauty because she was beautiful. It does not say specifically that she was to come immodestly dressed. It doesn't say that. Or that he intended for her, if she was dressed fully, to take off her clothing or parts of her clothing. It doesn't say that. There are some commentators who think that this was the purpose. I doubt that that was actually the purpose. Because it doesn't say it explicitly. So I can't say for sure that that was the reason. It does say explicitly to display her beauty, for she was beautiful. And what then could have been her concern? It doesn't say what her concern was. All it says is in verse 12, 
But Queen Vashti refused to come. That's all it says. She refused to come. I imagine her concern would have been that there would have been some drunk men. And she did not want them to, to hoot and holler and do whatever might, they might do in seeing her beauty. They didn't want them, her, she, she didn't want them to misbehave in her presence like that. Perhaps that was the reason. I can't imagine what else would have been the reason that would have been very obvious in a, in a party where there's going to be some drunk men present. What else would they do when they see a beautiful woman? And so perhaps that was her reason for refusing to come. I believe that her reason was a valid reason. She did not want to be humiliated and shamed in front of many men. I believe her reason was valid. However, the king is not looking at it that way. He has a merry heart from wine. And verse 12, it says that the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. The king responds in anger. He's got wine in him and he responds with the wine and he responds in anger. This response of the king is a wrong response. He should not have responded like, like this. He should not have been so merry with wine that he's unable to think rationally. Speaking of that, this king is known outside the Bible to be erratic and wrathful and angry, and he can easily suspect people and call for their execution. He can easily do things that are erratic and, and insane in terms of customary and, and, and calm activity. Well, this is what he does. In 13, he calls for the wise men who understood the times. This in the Bible is a way of describing his trusted counselors, his advisors, those who had access to him. And it says, for it was the custom of the king so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. Now who are these trusted ones? These trusted counselors, wise men, are these seven princes of Persia and Medea who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. Verse 14. The king had these seven counselors who were the princes of Persia and Medea. These seven princes had access to the king and advised him to do accordingly. And what was it? Verse 15. He asked them what is to be done. What should be done with Queen Vashti 15? Because she did not obey the command of the king, of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. And verse 16, and he speaks, uh, and in the presence of the king and the princes, Memukun said. Memukun uh, apparently is the spokesman for the seven. He speaks up and he says, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Memukun says that her response is a wrong response because she has disobeyed the king. She's disobeyed the king and she has also wronged all the people who hear about this. All the people who hear about this are going to respond accordingly. Verse 17. 
For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And to this day, the ladies of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. Now, the response of Memukan, speaking as a spokesman for the rest, he says that this conduct of the queen has not only wronged the king and the princes, but also to all the, the men who are throughout the realm. Because the women of the realm, the ladies of Persia and Medea, they will hear of this and they're going to say, well, the queen didn't have to obey, the queen didn't have to submit, the queen didn't have to listen to her husband, the king, so why do we need to listen to our husbands? We can do as we please. That's the, that's the consequence that Memukan says will occur. Now, how should we take this? How should we take this? I think that although Queen Vashti had a legitimate concern, that their response is also a legitimate response. She had a legitimate concern. She didn't obey. Well, why didn't either she take pains to make a, a plea to the king not to come, so that she mitigates her absence. And then why didn't the king do right by keeping control of his temper? And then here, these men, why don't they reason and rationalize with the king and say, listen, this is what's going on. Calm down about it. Now this is certainly going to be heard throughout the kingdom, but let's explain this to everyone. Let's reiterate the fact that there was a wrong desire on, the, on behalf of the king. And the queen, she could have appealed and she could have done thus and so. And then the people who hear of this, let's make sure that everybody understands, yes, we do believe that wives should submit to their husbands. Let's teach that. Everybody knows that, whether pagan or Christian, they know that it's a part of what the Bible teaches. It's a part of human nature and the orderliness of society that children obey parents and, and wives obey their husbands and the husbands, they obey their leaders in society, whether it's in church or, or in uh, civic duties, they obey them. And then all of us, men and, and uh, civic authorities, we are all accountable to God. Let's explain that. And just explain it and everything will be just fine. However, they don't do that. They say in verses 19 and following, let's demote and depose the queen and let's show it, let's stick it to her and let's stick it to all the women and teach them that they're supposed to obey their husbands. And let's show it this way by this harsh and, and severe penalty that we give to the queen. The king agrees to it it says in verse 21, This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. They did so. They issued a decree. The decree is sent out into the various regions of the empire throughout all the 127 provinces. It says in 22, Each province, according to its script, because they spoke different languages, 
They had different characters or script for their languages. It needed to be translated into all those languages. It was. And it was also translated in order to make sure that it was in the husband's language so that the husband could read it and explain it to his own family. To reiterate the fact that the husband, father, the head of the house, that he should be the master in his own house and that yes, though this disobedience has occurred, we're not advocating disobedience throughout the realm. We ought to keep order. There should be submission and respect of authority. And that's how it ends. She's deposed and the decree is issued.